Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and in today's episode, we are going to be talking about the origin of the Maori people. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the brilliant Amber Aranui. She is an archaeologist at Te Papa Museum in Wellington and the curator of Maori cultural objects. Currently, she's been doing a lot of work on repatriating cultural and human remains back to communities of origin, but today we're here to talk about origin stories writ large. Amber... Thank you so much for being here. Kia ora. Kia ora, Eleanor. Nice to be here. I am just absolutely over the moon to talk about this topic because I think it's so fruitful to be able to think about other communities outside of Europe and how they kind of come to be and move around. Because this isn't a story that is true of just one place in the globe. People are moving and doing interesting things and starting new cultures everywhere. And so I guess really huge broad question to start you out with, which is going to make it incredibly difficult. Where would we say that the Maori people originate? Firstly, probably to say that Māori as a people, as a culture, became Māori within New Zealand. But prior to that, they were our East Polynesian ancestors who originate from a number of island nations centred in what we call today East Polynesia. So the islands of Tahiti, the Cook Islands, Rarotonga, the Marquesas, sort of all around in that area is where the ancestors of Māori come from. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of a larger diaspora. We can't just say, oh, here's one island, right? It's going to be a huge cultural shift. Yeah. Our canoe traditions give us hints and in some cases identify specifically which islands within the Pacific they come from. So we know that we come not just from one island in the Pacific, but from a number of different islands. And do we have a really good idea of why it is that people kind of ended up in Aotearoa? Is this kind of a particular one pressure need to migrate? Is it just a kind of desire to discover? Do we really have any idea there? There's a lot of theories out there. And I guess a lot of what I'll talk about today is what we call the currently accepted theory. Nothing is known 100% for certain. But there are stories both here in New Zealand as well as in the Pacific 
which I think allude to reasons why our ancestors arrived here in Aotearoa. And conflict is definitely one of them. Population pressures, of course, is another. These are people who explored our vast oceans and came across islands, populated those islands, survived, thrived. And of course, population growth, there's a lack of room, fights start. Even things like pressures on resources, and so that causes people to continue to sail on, of course, to find new places to settle. And of course, we were a voyaging people. We didn't just sail to one island and that was it. We just stayed there. They were our highways. So we were always traveling and exploring and finding new places. So I think it was just a bit of a natural progression and probably much like the way people would have settled and populated the continents like Europe. In particular, I've always been completely obsessed with the sort of canoes and catamarans that people use to move around because there's such incredible pieces of tech, especially for the time, you know, and people quite rightly talk in Europe about Viking longships and the things that they're able to do with that technologically, but... Good Lord, you can get a long way on a catamaran, can't you? Yeah, I think thinking about using the Pacific as our highway and us as Polynesian people, we have a connection to the sea that goes back to 7,000 odd years. So we've had a long time to experiment with ocean-going vessels to maybe start off with single canoes. We were sort of island hopping in close proximity in areas if we think about places like Micronesia and Papua New Guinea around those areas where islands were fairly close together so there wasn't really a need for vast ocean going walkers but as they traveled eastwards islands get further apart sea gets a lot different than what it is in more sheltered areas and so naturally there's that evolution of a more hardy sea going vessel which ended up being the sort of double hulled canoes or what we call here in Aotearoa wakahaurua because I suppose that's a kind of generalized question. You know, I know that there's this brilliant tech in terms of the ships and this ability to kind of move around, but we're talking about vast distances. Even the idea of just when you say canoe, and I'm like, oh, I could never you know, be brave enough to just kind of get in that because we're talking about, you know, between Tahiti, 4,500K, right? Which I know because I had to go look it up. And that's terrifying to me in a vessel like that. I know. It is on my bucket list to do a voyage in a traditional ocean-going waka. I feel a bit scared to do it, but I feel like we have to experience it. We take for granted that we fly everywhere today. But in those days, jumping on a waka and traversing the oceans, I imagine was like us getting in a car and going for a ride. It's a bit more worrying for us today than I guess it would have been for them in the past. And I think what we've learnt is the way that they discovered places as they travelled east throughout the Pacific is they travelled against the currents so that it was much easier to come home. And so they go back out and then it's easier to come back. I guess it was an ingenious way to explore and to know that you get so far it's easier to get home. They were amazing people and using the environment to help them navigate that vast ocean with no landmarks, it's just mind-boggling. That's very interesting that you mentioned the currents, because I think that's something I haven't really thought about very much. I think the thing that I and quite a lot of people talk about when we imagine this is the really intricate and sophisticated knowledge of stars that people have to have had in order to do this navigation, right? Oh, absolutely. And knowing how to read those stars. We're only just uncovering that knowledge. There are people out there now from 
throughout the Pacific and mm-hmm. here in Aotearoa, that's the work that they do now. They're following the paths of their ancestors and going back and learning how to read the stars. And I guess it's not just the stars we have to learn. During the day, we've still got to navigate. When it's cloudy, we've still got to navigate. So it's using the stars, using the currents, learning how to read the water, learning how to read the waves, things like birds, fish, whales. Those are all signs to help navigate signs of land. If you see certain types of birds, because they are primarily, well, they go inland to roost, there is a landmass somewhere. There are a lot of signs out there, we call them tuhu, so like signs that indicate where people are within those oceans. And so it's using everything that you have, the whole environment, depending on the weather that you're in. But again, mainly sailing by the stars. And they would have, I imagine, gone and undertaken these voyages at certain times of the year so that the weather was favourable. Yeah, so very, I don't know, New Zealand we say onto it, but it's probably not the right word for it. (laughs) (laughs) That that makes sense to me. Sophisticated, onto it, it's all the same, you know. (laughs) If there's one time that we're allowed to use Kiwi slang, this is it. Do we have an idea of how many people ended up making this journey? I don't know that we know exactly how many people or even how many waka would have made this journey, but we do know that this journey was made over, I would say, generations. So it wasn't just one big fleet of waka that arrived in New Zealand and then they settled everywhere. It actually happened over several generations of time, and our traditional stories tell us that. But if you look at waka haurua or double-hulled canoes that exist today it gives you an idea of how many people can fit on them all the resources that you needed because you needed to bring all of that with you to be able to survive and if you're going to settle a new place you'd want to take as much as you can of your previous life with you so that you can continue that in the new place so I imagine these waka were quite large and and though it's not necessarily scientifically accurate if you look at the Disney movie Moana it gives you a good idea about what it may have looked like And especially for our listeners out there who have no idea what these ocean voyaging walkers might have been, I think that's quite a good example to give you an idea of their size. And of course, even on that movie, there are different size walkers, but the big voyaging ones, I imagine, would have been huge. Do we have any archaeological evidence for these walkers that they came in originally? We have small fragments, like the prow of a very old waka. The thing is with these ocean voyaging canoes is that you are able to dismantle them and then they became single hold canoes to continue to use around New Zealand. There's also an example in New Zealand that has been uncovered in the last few years and that has a turtle carved on the bottom. Now of course this turtle was not native to New Zealand which gives us maybe an inclination about its use of course the wood has been tested and the wood is from New Zealand what is that telling us we don't know for sure whether this was part of a deep sea ocean voyaging waka it may well have been so we haven't found a whole waka buried in New Zealand unfortunately like some of the Viking ships that have been uncovered there are pieces that give us clues as to what these vessels look like 
And of course, we also go back to the Pacific and they also have examples of what these vessels were like. And I suppose this is one of these things when we're talking about the waka. These are completely degradable materials too. Yes. You know, we're lucky if we can keep wood going now when we've got shellac to put on it and things like this. And, you know, and I'm kind of like, is there a 700-year-old wooden boat around for me to leave? <laughs> it's a huge ask. I realize that. But yeah, it's also such a testament to how incredibly savvy these are as a group of people too. Because, you know, you make this huge ocean going vessel and then yeah what do you do when you get there well i'm not going back out in it use it again you know because resources are limited i suppose i think we could learn so much from that as a mindset of how to kind of use objects or think about what it is we actually need really Okay, so I used to, when I was growing up, I would go sometimes to the Field Museum in Chicago, and there was this great exhibition about islander culture more generally, and there was a little video game you could play about loading a waka to go try to find something, and it was kind of like in the Oregon Trail model, you might die if you did it wrong. They would say, okay, well, how much water are you going to bring? How many chickens are you bringing? How many pigs are you bringing? And I remember when they asked the question about pigs, my little mind being blown because it was sort of like not only are you and some people and your water and some pineapples getting on this waka it was like pigs i can't even imagine bringing along you know livestock as well it's just such a huge undertaking i suppose yeah in a way i suppose they would be used to thinking that way about okay we're traveling however long to this island We need to take everything we want with us. Coming to New Zealand, that would have been a massive undertaking. The distance between even the Cook Islands, Rarotonga, for instance, to New Zealand, it's still a vast distance. And having to really think about, okay, so we're going to this new land. What do we need to bring with us? So they would need to bring with them everything they needed for the voyage itself, food, water, things to collect water while out on the ocean there would have been ways in which they were able to store and collect if it rained you'd be out there with your containers collecting water to be able to drink along the way but also food of course you're going to be doing a lot of fishing while you're there so that'd be a really good source of protein but then you also need carbohydrates so you need to be able to store food like taro and yams and breadfruit and that kind of thing but then you also need to think about what am I going to bring with me for when I'm there so you need to bring your tools your gardening implements all your fishing gear things that you might need for trapping things to build houses and shelter and all of that kind of stuff I guess there's a lot of things to think about in terms of exactly what they need so I can imagine the canoes would have been very full on those journeys it's just amazing even just trying to think about it so here they are they arrive it's around we think kind of 14th century kind of Mm. 1320 to 1350 something like that and they encounter this really different environment yeah for one it's subtropical So you come from a tropical region where it's warm and you come to Aotearoa, even coming to the north of the North Island, it's not always a warm place. And you just imagine having sailed from the islands and coming upon New Zealand and then just as you get closer, you see this huge landmass, these huge mountains that you've never seen before. Imagine those that even went to the South Island to see snow. (laughs) They would never, ever have experienced that before. 
I just think it would have been a great adventure. And of course, you have the people that you need that have the skills to be able to get out there and investigate and understand this new climate, understand the resources that they have. There's different trees, there's different grasses, there's different birds. Of course, there's the more this giant bird. So we know that it's highly likely our ancestors would have brought chickens and pigs. But you look at the more, you also look at seals. There's no need to hang on to those. So they haven't really survived in our archaeological record at least. But the dog survived that they brought with them. The rat, the kiore, that survived. Of course, that would have survived quite easily, I would have expected. There are only some things that have survived from our the East Polynesian or Tropical Polynesian homelands. Everything else, we're just adapted to this new environment, this lush, green, fertile place with fresh water so easily accessible and it may not have been that way in some of our islands within the East Polynesia. While it was a bit colder, it would have been, wow, this is amazing. We've got everything we need and there's enough room for everybody. You say enough room for everybody, but whenever I think about showing up on the beach and seeing a moa, I'm like, that's a dinosaur, <laughs> right? They moved into this island and there's dinosaurs walking around and they're huge, yeah. you know, like 10 feet tall. But no, it's such a brave thing to do. I mean, yeah. really, we talk a lot about medieval ideas about new places being full of monsters, if you don't know what it is. But these people came to a new place and found monsters yeah. and were like, yeah, I yeah. can make it if you think the moor's bad, we had the Haast eagle. It's said to have been the biggest eagle ever. And that eagle was there picking up and hunting more. Mm. So you can imagine the type of environment that they had come across. And they would have had to be very skilled to have to avoid that predator, mm, mm. at least. I guess that would have been the only predator that they would have had to worry about. Because that's the thing, is that it is this really very specific ecosystem. You know, so sure, there's terrifying birds. So, you know, there's a lot of dinosaurs around, but you're not going to have large carnivorous mammals or anything like that to worry about. No, I think the only mammal that is native to New Zealand is the bat, and that's only quite small. We have no snakes, no carnivorous animals. We have a couple of poisonous spiders, but you don't have big, massive tarantulas or anything like that. No scorpions and nothing as terrifying as you'd find in Australia, for example. It's just a world full of birds and birds of all sizes and birds that didn't fly, that were easy to catch. So yeah, I think in terms of food resources and protein in particular, I think it was extremely plentiful. Mm. This plenty really kind of encourages a spreading out across the islands. And when we do this, do we see people kind of maintaining their tribal groups that they came in? Or do we see kind of more of an adaptation to creating new connections within this space? I would say it's a bit of both. Of course, you come to New Zealand on your waka, you're already an established community in that sense. And so you establish yourself in certain areas. There is evidence also of ancestors. So from the Tainui Waka, for example, it sailed to one area within New Zealand. Some people got off and then others continued on and then they stopped at another area and so then they settled in that area. It all depends on what is already established, who else is already there, of course, because you've got several waves of settlement over generations. So you might find you're like, oh, this is perfect for me. Oh, no, oops, there's already somebody here and they're not keen for us to live with them. So we'll just go off and find somewhere else. But then others were like, yeah, no, come in. So there's a variety of intermarrying into already established groups within Aotearoa. 
and my iwi too, Ngāti Kahununu, that's part of our history, is that when we came and settled into the area called the Hawke's Bay, there were already people there who had arrived in previous voyages. And so we ended up intermixing. There was a bit of fighting, of course, which is usual. But you intermarry and you mix and then you live in harmony. And so now when we think about our ancestors, we acknowledge all of those lines that we come from because they are the people of the land. It's a quite complex sort of social structure though, right? So you kind of have political disagreements can happen. You know, there's going to be intermarriage. There's going to be all these things. How do you manage a society like this? I would say very carefully. (laughs) There'd be a lot of marriages to help smooth down issues. Mm -hmm. The chiefs or the rangatira of settlements, of areas, They are your leaders, and if there's areas where tension is caused, mainly sometimes it's around resources and food, or somebody has perhaps stolen Mm -hmm. somebody else's wife, things like that, that go on in all communities, even today. There's certain ways in which these issues were sorted out. One is warfare. The other is marriage, to strengthen those ties between those two communities or those two tribal groups. The other might be saying, oh, okay, we'll share this resource with you. You can have access to these fishing grounds at these times of the year. While I would imagine in the early period of settlement, there wouldn't have been too many issues around that. I think once Māori become Māori and cease being East Polynesians and the population grows, and because you all want to be in areas where you have a lot of resource and it's nice weather, the far north was the most highly populated area archaeologically in Aotearoa because it had the perfect climate to grow kumara, which we bought from East Polynesia. And it doesn't grow further south. It doesn't grow in the South Island. You're very lucky if you can grow it at the bottom of the North Island. And if that's your primary source of carbohydrates, then that's important to try and stay up in those areas. But as population grew, land gets very scarce and you want to do what you can to protect it. And of course then, what's more common part of our history is our tribal warfare when we have pa or fortified villages start cropping up around the country. And a theory is that a lot of that was over the kumara, was over food. So there's food scarcity in areas, so you do what you can to protect that food source. So it's a very interesting time period, I think. And even today, we're still learning more about what happened during those times. Mm. That's completely understandable as well, because I'm telling you, in Europe, we see exactly the same thing. You know, every single town pretty much is fortified because you never know when someone's coming through. And one of the things that they do, even if it's some high-minded battle between kings, well, they're still going to steal your crops. That's what happens, you know, and that's a huge part of it. So so we have a kind of hierarchical society. You know, there are kind of people who are leading various tribes. Do we also see anything kind of like a council where they are also doing, I don't know, diplomacy between varying places there were two main types of units there were the commoners and there were the chiefly people and even within that chiefly community there are your araki which is your high chief and then you have your rangatira which are i guess would be leaders of larger family groups and i would imagine that there would be times where those leaders would all have to come together to discuss matters arising around food around warfare, obviously, Mm. and maybe even around creating relationships, resources, trading, all of that sort of things. And if you look back to the way that communities were set up within East Polynesia, very similar, not exactly the same as what we imagine now, Mm -hmm. but it would have been the same setup 
the same structure in East Polynesia when they first came to Aotearoa, to New Zealand. And while it would have adapted and changed slightly, I imagine it would have been the same sort of concept. So when you as an archaeologist are sorting through all of this, we've got some pieces of some waka, we have some evidence for fortified towns. Do you have any other kind of material evidence that you can find about these super early communities? Yeah, that's quite hard. But there are three locations within New Zealand that have been dated as being quite early. And the most popular one is Wairau Bar. So that's located at the top of the South Island. And this is a settlement, a village, not fortified, but in the 40s and 50s, some early material was uncovered and human remains were uncovered, burials were uncovered. And so the burial goods that were found with these ancestors were very early and very unmoldy like very East Polynesian in style. And over time, a lot of research has been done They've done some scientific research on those ancestral remains with the support of the local iwi who are the descendants of those people. And they've found that some of those burials there could well be part of that first wave of settlement to New Zealand. And that's amazing. And for me, studying archaeology, that was the holy grail of New Zealand archaeology. That is the place that you study to learn about who Māori were, how Māori became Māori. And there's really good examples of that kind of transitional period, perhaps, between going from an East Polynesian people to having that culture change into becoming Māori. And it's an amazing site, and there's a lot being written about Wairau Bar, but there's also other locations within the Coromandel and also in the Wairarapa that are also seen as being just as early. Hi, it's Dan Snow here from Dan Snow's History Hit podcast. So we've got a massive conventional war on the European mainland, and there are ever more signs of climate breakdown. If you're trying to make sense of all the wild things we're living through, my podcast, Dan Snow's History Hit, is here to help. Our expert historians, thinkers and storytellers unravel the history behind the headlines so you can navigate the news with confidence and clarity. Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. It's 
it's just incredible to me to really think about this process of becoming because you're coming from a sort of similar background in East Polynesia. But as you say, you become this new thing, the Maori. Presumably, there's going to be a kind of almost communal will, I suppose, to kind of band together and create this, right? I suppose sharing the new knowledge and becoming this sort of distinct new thing. And I just find that so interesting in a time when you can kind of think that's lost, I suppose, you know, that the things are very settled. And well, no, you know, we're, we're still all kind of like a, doing the messy business of being humans and decide what that looks like, right? Yeah, I think if you look at the way in which the Pacific was settled, you can see places like New Caledonia, Vanuatu, all of that area. That's where you have two groups of people coming together and learning off each other, creating and adapting a new culture. And then that culture then moves east towards Fiji, Tonga, Samoa. And then they're there for a period of time. They're in isolation. And then they go from being what's termed the Lapita people to being Polynesian. They go from being one cultural group, move into another area, settle, adapt, their culture changes, and then they become a new people with a new identity and new beliefs and new practices and a new whakapapa or genealogy and history. And that sort of just continues as you move further across the Pacific and you see the Hawaiians and then you go as east as you can possibly be within the Pacific, you get to Rapa Nui or Easter Island and then come here to Aotearoa. And if you look at those three nations and all those in between, you can see, oh, there's a lot of similarities but they all have their own differences and I think with New Zealand being that last land mass in the Pacific to be settled by Polynesians it's just amazing how different we are but yet how still very close and similar we are as a people and even today many of us see each other as family as relations because we are all still related even though the vastness of the oceans and the thousands or hundreds of years separate us but I personally still see us as one big Pacific family. So I guess natural question here then, when we're creating these cultures and these communities and this new way of kind of thinking about ancestor, what do we know about the spiritual belief systems that we find? Yep. So that is one of our cultural practices that has continued. Mm-hmm. And that has also continued in many ways right from East Polynesia. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors had a spiritual belief system where we had many gods, not just one. Mm-hmm. And those gods related to various environmental aspects as well as spiritual elements. For an example, we have Tangaroa. So Tangaroa is god of the sea. And you find that Tangaroa, Tangaloa, is all throughout the Pacific. You also have Tane. Tane Mahuta is god of the forest. So he is the god of birds, trees, plants. Not cultivated plants, but the natural world. So that when you're going into the forest and you're wanting to build a canoe, for example, you'll do a ritual which acknowledges Tāne. We have the god of war, Tūmātauinga. So he's not a god of any specific element, but he is a god of war. And so he is invoked in times of war to be able to support you. And then we have Rungo. Rungo is the god of peace and of gardening. Each god has their own realm. And then we have Maui Tikitiki Ataranga. He's known actually by many names. And he's a demigod. He was responsible for fishing up Aotearoa or the North Island specifically. But again, if you look into the Pacific, Maui is all through the Pacific. From Samoa, Hawaii, 
all the way down to Aotearoa. And again, the movie Moana demonstrates that Maui <laughs> was naughty. And we have a lot of stories, a lot of our oral traditions tell us about the deeds that he did and the things that he did that created the country that we live in today. So you mentioned there, if you're kind of looking for trees to make a canoe, to make a waka, you might do a ritual. Do we know much about the rituals that are kind of being practiced at this point in time? Yeah, they are like incantations, maybe prayers, maybe not quite the right term, but we do know a lot about those. So those incantations or karakia would have been performed by what we call tohunga, so experts. So they would have been experts in their field, so experts in the spiritual arts. And that's their job. Some of that knowledge isn't known by everybody. You have special people that have special roles within a community and spiritual roles were one of them. I think one of the really great sort of rituals that, I mean, I know a lot more about because a bunch of my friends, they have their tamoko, you know, they've got their tattoos and yeah, my girlfriend just has the most beautiful tamoko on her chin, which she got done recently. And it's just uh, stunning. These sort of things are kind of like particularly Maori, right? When we're talking about tamoko, no? Yeah, tattooing, tamoko, as we call it in New Zealand today, it's very popular. It's about your identity. And moko, even in the past, you have moko kowai, which your friend has on her chin, and you have mata ora, which is the full face tattoo. And those signified who you were, the deeds you've done, who you represent. So even today, we wear them as marks to show who we are. So you look at somebody with a Māori moko and you assume straight away that they are, are Māori. Some may not be, of course, because there's the tattooing culture is huge around the world. But it's a really important cultural signifier for us here in New Zealand as a people. And I guess that also too spreads throughout the Pacific with tattoo. But tattooing, the beautiful thing about tamoko for me is that it's only becoming more and more worn and accepted here in New Zealand. There was a period of time where the art of tamoko almost disappeared. Today, we've got some amazing tohunga tamoko or tattoo artists who have studied and trained under previous experts. And some of the work that's coming out is just amazing. And to see facial tattoos as a norm in New Zealand, it's very heartwarming. In the past, they were associated with a more negative side of gangs and that kind of stuff. But actually, despite that, I think that also had a role in keeping that part of our culture alive. So today, it's not so much associated with that more negative side, but we've got politicians that have full facial tamoko, people in the military, police officers. It's amazing to see. It's a norm even within our museum to have people with tamoko. And I believe it's only going to grow, which is great. <laughs> we know a lot about what happens from archaeological evidence, but again, in a world where everything is kind of biodegradable and organic, we can lose that. So oral traditions and songs and stories, this is, you know, one of the big ways that we understand Maori culture, no? Yes, it's a huge part of the way in which we impart knowledge and whakapapa, so whakapapa is genealogy, but it's not just lineage, straight up and down whakapapa, it's sideways as well, and it's how we connect to the world. It's it's a real tonga, it's a real treasure 
for us to have had that knowledge passed down for us. And I think oral tradition for us comes in many forms. It comes in things like whakatoki, which are proverbs or songs. And it's a really great way of continuing to transfer that knowledge over generations is in a song. We have what's known as kōrero pūrāko or stories. Again, papa, And also one thing that, you know, we might not automatically think about is place names. And it also helps us to remember what happened in a certain place. It could be named after a battle. It's like a trigger of saying, oh, okay, so that place name is that, and that relates to this battle that happened. And then you're able to remember and recite what happened in those times. But each of those types of oral tradition, they have their own special forms, and they make reference to things that have happened in the past. They are either transferred down in full, or... They might be, I don't know, like little triggers to remember things that happened in the past. They might be funny little stories that teach us a lesson about something that happened in the past. I think things like the story of Maui and how we fished up the North Island. Of course, for some of our very early explorers that came to New Zealand and tried to understand who we are, they took our culture very literally. And we're not a literal people. We talk in riddles and we talk in imaginations and we talk about Maui, this demigod who fished up the North Island. And you don't take that literally. It's a story about how we settled here and how we discovered this place. And so by turning it into a cool story that's easily remembered just helps to impart that knowledge on to future generations. So you mentioned here the importance to of place names in doing commemoration and thinking about, for example, battles. We've kind of touched on this very briefly, but what did warfare kind of look like at this time? It was very much hand-to-hand combat because, of course, we didn't have metal. So our weapons were made out of wood, stone and bone. So we have things like taiaha or spears. We have various types of spears or long clubs. We also have a lot of shorthand clubs, so very close contact fighting. I guess you could say they would have been our own version of hatchets and axes and those types of quite gruesome weapons, as you can imagine, would do quite a lot of damage. We see from the archaeological record, particularly with burials, the way in which people have died, blunt force trauma, was quite common so you can imagine that would have been atu which is a sort of a short handled weapon sometimes we made out of ponamu which was a really prized resource greenstone or jade it might be known more commonly and that was as hard as steel so that could do some real damage we didn't really have things like bow and arrows so nothing long distance but yeah more really close quarters hand-to-hand combat was pretty much the way that we did things in those days. So, okay, this really intricate and kind of evolving landscape here in terms of what it means culturally on the ground. So it seems like life is really kind of changing. You know, you get here in the 14th century, eventually Europeans show up about 500 years later, but this isn't static, right? It's not like, oh, here's the culture, bang, it's done, right? Over the years, and various archaeologists and historians and theorists have theorized about the different stages of adaptation or and culture change that Māori went through from the time they arrived until the time of Cook. I think generally we can split that time period up into three sections. 
so there's the settlement period which is from the time of arrival to maybe around the 1400s it's hard because there are two schools for early settlement and the later settlement but I guess that early settlement period is whenever we arrived and probably the first sort of couple of hundred years when we are still very much Polynesian we have scattered mainly coastal communities at this time because that's the way in which we're used to living mostly within those Pacific nations. By this time we've fully gotten to know our environment and the resources that are available so we know what's poisonous, what's not poisonous, what we can use to weave our mats to make our clothing and all that kind of stuff. So it's really a time of investigation and experimentation. Here horticulture is established by this time as well. The interesting thing about this time is that with the kumara in particular, that main source of carbohydrates, coming from East Polynesia is a period where you can pretty much grow them all year round. But when you come to New Zealand, we have a winter. (laughs) We have to figure out, okay, so we can't grow them all year round. How are we going to store them? That is a huge adaptation that we have had to make to figure out how to store our food over a period of time and that it not go off. So during this period, we figured out ways of storing our food effectively so that we wouldn't starve. And I think a lot of our cultural practices, perhaps, and a lot of artifacts, our tools, would still probably be quite recognisable as East Polynesian. And then we go to a period which is called Rapid Expansion and Change, And so this is from up until about 1500, maybe. And at this time, population's growing. And as population grows, people got to move. The population in the north of the North Island, a nice warm area, that's just exploding. And people are starting to move southwards. This period of time, there's a decline in some of our food sources. And that is the moor in particular. That, as we know, disappears. There's a more intensified production, so we're intensively farming areas, so there's slash and burn, we're cultivating large tracts of land by this time, and actually we kind of change in terms of our political organisation, where groups are based on a common ancestor, so that's where we get iwi and hapu, so iwi is national tribe and hapu is like a sub-tribe, a more extended family. And I guess all of these things that are expanding and rapidly evolving, the same for what we call endemic warfare and the arrival of pa. And at the end of this time, that's when pa just start popping up everywhere. That's understandable with the just huge increase in population growth. And then finally, we have what we call the traditional period. And that's from about 1500 to 1769, the arrival of Captain Cook. And that period of time, when you go to museums in New Zealand or overseas and artifacts from New Zealand, from Māori culture, most of those artifacts, if not all, will come from this period. So there is not a lot that has survived prior to that period. Why? We don't know. Of course, a lot of things don't last We don't have monumental stone architecture like many other places and places especially within the Pacific. Things like that just don't last. So yeah, the weapons that we see, the carvings that we see, all of those bone implements, fish hooks and so on, they all come from that period. 
And the other interesting thing is that the theory is that most of our oral traditions, not so much about Maui and things like that, but other things that relate to tribal history and that sort of thing, probably relate to this period of our history. So it's interesting how far we've come, actually, and how much we've developed over a short period of time. But I'm sure similar things were happening all around the world in other places as well. I think that one of the things, though, that is really important coming from a kind of European context, right, is there's no monumental stone architecture. But what you have instead are this monumental architecture of oral communication, right? This creation and building of a society and a world where we actually do know so much about the Maori. And it's not just about every time, you know, oh, there's a big building. I can see it right now. Being able to communicate these things. And that's something you can take everywhere. You can get in a waka and take this story and tell it to someone else. And this is a form of mass communication that is available to everyone. And that's a technology. Absolutely. <laughs> and what I love is that we still can connect back to our East Polynesian roots. I love that. We've been here for such a long time, yet we still know where we've come from. And I think that's amazing. And even Māori today, we're still travelling. We're still voyaging around the world, living in places like Australia, the UK. We still have that wanderlust for travel and for exploration. It's in our DNA and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I hope not. No. <laughs> I think that's as good a place to leave it as any because otherwise I'll just talk your ear off for the rest of the day. But <laughs> thank you so much for listening and thank you to Amber for joining me. This has been Gone Medieval by History Hit. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, follow the podcast and please tell your friends about it. If you're looking for more medieval goodness in your life and who isn't, you can subscribe to our Medieval Monday newsletter by following the link in the show notes below. If you fancy suggesting an episode, you can drop us an email at gonemedieval at historyhit.com. Otherwise, I'm going to be back next Tuesday for another episode, and my co-host Matt Lewis will be back on Friday. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.